Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. You can take your Bible and go ahead and turn there. I'm very excited to share these verses with you this morning. Oh, the whole book of Romans is awesome, but we're coming into a section that is so intensely practical, and I hope that you uh, benefit it from it like I have as I've studied. We'll get into it in a second, but uh, just to sum up, the last couple of weeks, we have been studying this concept that for many of us has been kind of a uh, uncharted territory or unexplored terrain, and that is this great doctrine of union with Christ. And we've kind of walked around the tip of the iceberg, and we've seen what is union with Christ. But I say the tip of the iceberg because I looked it up this week. In the New Testament, the phrase in Christ is 91 times used, 91 times. So I'm kind of intrigued to like look through the whole New Testament, see all these times where our union with Christ, in Christ, is used. Because we would benefit greatly from exploring this grand doctrine. So we just kind of scratched the surface the last couple of weeks. But as we've talked about union with Christ, as Pastor Steve has shared, we've seen one thing very clear, and that is that through Christ, in Christ, because of our union with Christ, we died to sin and were raised to life in Jesus Christ. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. You might remember last week, Pastor Steve's illustration of those cardboard little props, right, where they have the hole cut out, and it might be, you know, like if you're at the zoo, it might be an animal or it might be, I mean, who knows? I mean, wherever you are, they have unique ones. But you put your face through the hole and then you are the character. And so he talked last week about the, the cardboard character being Jesus Christ hanging on the cross crucified. Our face in that cutout. I don't know about you. Now, I, was, I missed last week. I was out of state, but I watched uh, the video and I listened to the sermon. And I don't know about you, but that feels to me... A, almost a little blasphemous. Like here's my face right here in, in where Jesus Christ is crucified. And, and what that tells me is that's the scandal of the gospel. That's how scandalous the gospel is. Like me in Christ, Christ in me, all my sin upon Christ, and then Christ's righteousness, Christ's righteous act on that cross in my place. It is scandalous, but it's true. And I love that illustration of us in Christ. On the cross, we were in Christ, unified with him if we're a believer. And as he was buried, we were unified with him. And as he rose again, we're unified with Christ. And that means that the old nature died. The old nature is gone. We have a new nature. But as you're reading through Romans, it kind of begs the question, okay, if my old nature is dead, then why does it feel so alive sometimes? Why, why do I read these verses and say, okay, I guess these things are true, but what I'm feeling is I'm feeling like my old nature is so alive. What do we do with that? And we come into a text here that really deals with the reality of living as a new creation, still dogged by old sin. And that's where we live and that's what we feel every day is, okay, I'm a new creation, but man, do I feel like the old sometimes. I'm still dogged by those same sins. Super practical. So let's get into it this morning. Romans 6, verses 5 through 14. We're only, our text is 12, 13, and 14, but I'd like to start in 5 so we get our context from last week and then roll into 12 through 14. So follow along as I read Romans 6, starting in verse 5, all the way through 14 there. This is what God's word says. For if we have been united with him, that's Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now our text for this morning, 12, 13, and 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. And I love these three verses we're looking at here. Our title this morning, it, it, it comes from, uh, it's inspired by a man who lived in the 1600s. You're going to see his picture up there um, in a second. Yep, there he is. Okay. Lived in the 1600s. He was a Puritan pastor. He was actually a friend and advisor to Oliver Cromwell. He has been called uh, the Puritan theologian, like the prominent Puritan theologian. He's also been called the Calvin of England, interestingly. His name was John Owen. And John Owen was an incredible blessing to the church. And over the years, some of his works have very much um, built up the body of Christ. Now, here's one of his classic quotes, one that you may have heard. I've even seen it on coffee cups and t-shirts recently. And, And here's what it says. And it comes from a book of the mortification of sin in believers. You want a good read? Check it out. Now it's old, okay? (laughs) But it's good stuff. He says this. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's something to write down right there. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So for something written in the 1600s, pretty applicable today. Now Romans 6 through 8 is texts that John Owen had in mind, among others in Galatians and, and other places in the New Testament when he wrote about this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You. So in the last couple of weeks in Romans 8, we have seen the idea that we're dead to sin. We're already dead to sin, and yet we're seeing here in 12, 13, and 14, kill sin. So if we're dead to sin, why are we killing sin? That's the great question, and it, our, our, our text this morning addresses it. Starting with this, we died to sin, but sin didn't die to us. So we died to sin, but sin isn't dead. Sin didn't die to us. Truly, this is a bit mysterious. I mean, what are we talking about here? And I can't explain it completely, but it's part of the epoch of time that we live in, which is the already, not yet. Already, this is true about us. We are uh, a new creation. Uh, Our old man died in Christ and rose again, but not yet are we in heaven. Not yet are we glorified. So it's it's the time that we live in. But I know two things are crystal clear from this passage. Number one, We have been delivered from sin. I mean, verses 1 through 11, we've looked at it. and You can kind of glance at your Bible. It's not up on the screen, but that's what we learned the last couple weeks. We have been, as believers, we have been delivered from sin. It's already happened. It is true about us. Verse 14 as well. Verse 12 and 13 teaches us that we still deal with sin. So yeah, we've been delivered from it, but we still deal with it every day. 
The best way I can think of to explain this, to illustrate this, something that's helped me over the years, and um, I don't know, works for me, might not work for you, because my mind sometimes is a little different, but um, it's this idea of phantom limb. You ever heard about the phenomenon of phantom limb? Somebody loses a limb or an appendage, maybe an arm or leg or whatever, and for years, I think sometimes the rest of their life, they still could swear that it's there. They feel it. They almost feel their fingers moving because the nerves are still firing. There's something going on there. It's, it's hard to explain, uh, but this is a great illustration. Now, I've never, never experienced phantom limb, but I have experienced phantom beard. I'm serious. It sounds really funny, and it is kind of ridiculous, but I grew a really long beard at one time, and then I shaved it all in one day, and for the next couple of weeks, I was like doing this with my mustache, and it wasn't even there. <laughs> phantom limb more than phantom beard is a good illustration here, okay? So let's just stick with phantom limb, but phantom limb, think about this. You have lost your old nature. It's been removed from you. You're dead to it, but man, does it feel alive sometimes, right? It's as if you can still feel it right there, like your old nature is there dogging you, and yet God says, it's not there. It's been done away with, but man, sin is still alive. Sin in your, almost in your, your nerve endings is, is, is happening. Sin isn't dead in the believer, so every day we have to go about the business of killing it so that it doesn't kill us. So where do we begin when it comes to killing sin? Well, it's really important we get this right. If we get this wrong, and I think we often do, then we cannot grow in holiness. We cannot see sin killed, mortified. It won't happen. Where do we begin? Dying to sin must precede killing sin. And this is why the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, writes in this order in Romans chapter 6. Dying to sin has to precede killing sin. It's written to believers here, verse 13. So as you look at what verse 13, it says, those who have been brought from death to life. So we're talking about people who already are believers. They've already been changed. That's happened. They've died to sin. And so now once you've died to sin, you can now kill sin. There's no other way. You cannot kill a sin without having first died to sin. The best you can do if you haven't died to sin and your old nature isn't gone is sin management. Uh, but it's not sin mortification. You can't kill sin. You can just manage it. You can kind of make your life a little bit better. You can try to live as a better person. But unless you die to sin as a believer and your old nature is done, it's baptized, it's gone, it's buried, you can't actually kill sin. So Paul develops this very strategically. This is what's happened. You've died to sin. Now go about the business of killing sin. True, true holiness only happens because of Christ in us. It's not because of our effort. It's because the Holy Spirit is in us. It's because Christ is in us and we're in Christ. That's where holiness begins. And there's some people who are trying to kill sin without being buried with Christ, without having submitted to Christ in the first place. So they're going about their life trying to address the different areas they know they're supposed to work on and kill sin here, kill sin there. Maybe eventually they'll, they'll finally kill sin. But that's not the way it works. That's backwards. The only way that sin can be killed in your life is to first die to sin. And that's what we see in the text. Verse 12 through 13 is very much connected to verse 1 through 11 and verse 14. If you try to kill sin without dying to sin, it's like the cart before the horse. And the cart has no power. It can't pull. 
You, you need the new nature. You need to be a horse of a different color in order to actually make a change, to have something happen. I want you to look. You won't see it on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, just glance at chapter 6. And I want you to know that verse 1 through 11 and 14 are connected to verse 12 and 13. And here, here's how it works. In verse 1 through 11 and verse 14, it's written as statement of fact. The mood in, in, the, in the language is, is called indicative. It means it has happened. It is a fact. It, these things are true. If you're in Christ, you are a new creature. You are changed. The old nature is gone. You've been united with him in a death like his. You've been resurrected in a resurrection like his. These are indicative truths. They have happened. And verse 14 is the same way. But verse 12 and 13 are actually written in a different mood. They're written in an imperative, which means a command. In fact, it's one of the first times in Romans so far. We come to a command where it's like, so far in Romans, it's been all of this stuff that's true with a few exceptions. And now we come to a section of Romans that starts to say, here's what you do. It's intensely practical. These things are true, these indicatives. This you must do, imperative. So do not let sin reign, it says in verse 12 and 13. And Paul's helping us understand something here. Both of these are absolutely necessary. You have to have verses 1 through 11 and 14. And you have to have verses 12 through 13. You must have it all. Let me ex explain why. If you only have the command, verse 12 and 13, if you're looking at it, if you only have, be holy, don't do this, stop doing the sinful stuff with no realization of who you are in Christ or your identity or the gospel, then you don't have holiness you have moralism. You have legalism. You have cleaning up yourself without a new nature. You don't have holiness. You have to have verses 1 through 11 and verse 14 in order to have holiness. But in a similar way, you can't stop at verse 11. You can't just say, oh, these things are true about me, supposedly, and I'm going to reckon myself dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. Just consider myself dead to sin, but have no attempt whatsoever to live a holy life. Not a lick of attempt. Yeah, I'm in Christ. I'm, I'm good. I remember as a kid, I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle, whatever. I, I'm good. God's gonna make me holy. No, he's saying it's your identity in Christ that's the basis, but you need to put off sin. You need to do certain things. Both of these are so very important. Because see, doing, doing nothing and just saying, oh, I'm in Christ is not holiness, it's hypocrisy. It's people saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a new creature, but I don't really even try, and I don't even care to try to live differently. John Murray said this, he said, it is a spurious spirituality that can be indifferent to the claims of holiness as they bear upon the sanctification of our physical being. Death to sin and life to God, deliverance from the dominion of sin, that's verses one through 11 we've been looking at, will demonstrate their reality in the tangible and visible by denying to the lusts of the body the gratification they demand. That's verse 12 and 13. This is gonna happen. If you're a new creation, if you're changed and your old nature's gone, you're going to be attempting to live a holy life. Growth in holiness is becoming what we already are. I like, I like thinking of it this way. We are this, this is our new nature, but we're becoming it. We're actually growing into Christ's likeness. We're growing into the very people that we are as new creations. Growth in holiness is becoming what we already are. And verse 13 says that. It says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You have been brought from death to life, so start living that way. He's saying, present yourselves to God as those who've already been brought from death to life. 
become what you already are. Our identity drives our morality. It's got to be our identity first. The horse drives the cart. So we start with who we are. That's what verse 14 says as well. Verse 14 in your text says, For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law, but under grace. And 14 is kind of neat because verse 1 and 14 almost are like little bookends here. Paul's been making an argument. If you remember verse 1 or if you have your Bible open, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's saying, hey, now that we're under grace, should we just sin, as Pastor Steve said, epically, royally? Let's just do whatever we want because we're under grace. Well, verse 14 says, no, because you're not under law but under grace, therefore sin will have no dominion over you. It's the opposite. It's not like, oh, I'm, in, uh, I'm, I'm changed so that I can do whatever I want. It's no, I'm changed so that I can live the life God wants me to live. So I go back to this phrase, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I want to pick that apart from the text here, verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13 again. So notice this. If we give ourselves to sin, this is really verse 12, it will dominate and destroy us. Verse 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. If you give yourself over to sin, it will dominate you. It can even destroy you. When I read this verse, I understand that sin can't rule me unless I let it. But if I let it, it can make me obey. And this is what I love about these verses because it, it squares with reality. It's what you and I deal with as Christians because we say, hey, I'm a new creation. My old nature's dead, but why am I living in sin? Why, am, why does it feel so hard to break these chains? Sin in this text is personified. It's almost as if it's a person, right, as you're reading here. This sin is doing something. It, it, it's kind of this illustration. It's almost as if we've elected sin to be our ruler. We've chosen to do it, or we've chosen to have it rule over us. We've said, sin, yes, you can rule over me, but once it gets into office, once it begins to rule us, we realize it's a tyrant, it's corrupt, and it makes our life miserable, and it destroys us. So even as believers, yes, if we sin enough, it begins to take a life of its own on. And before you know it, we feel trapped. Sin is, as the text says, making us obey its passions. That's exactly what we experience. Isn't this what happens with addiction? Any addiction, you, you, can, you can pick the addiction, but you can't seem to stop a destructive behavior even though you want to. You get to a point where it's like, I want to break free, but I can't. Romans 6.12 perfectly explains why believers, Christians, new creations can struggle with addictions. Because yes, we're new, but if we give sin the permission, if we give ourselves over to sin, it rules us. It makes us obey. How does it do that? How does sin dominate and destroy us? It does so through our body, as Paul points out here. It does so through our physical bodies. Now, we realize that though we're in Christ, we are in Christ, right? That's that union with Christ. We're also still in the flesh. And Paul says this in other passages. I live this life in the flesh. That means that I'm a human being with skin and with bodily organs and, and all of me that's human till the day I die. And because I'm human, I'm prone to sin. In fact, sin is in me. And so this sin will never be completely eradicated till I get to heaven. So we're in Christ, but we're in the flesh. That's different than being an old creation, but it means I'm in the flesh. And so with that come temptations, human temptations, and they come through our body. 
Now, there may be more than the body that Paul's talking about here, but for, for sure, he's highlighting the body. Did you notice in verse 12, he says, our mortal body. And in verse 13, he says, your members, which are body parts or um, even limbs is what it literally means. So he's talking about our physical bodies. Verse 13, our body is an instrument, it says. The various parts of our body are instruments, or it can be translated tools, or it can often be translated weapons. Now, tools, instruments, weapons even, in and of themselves are not evil. It's how they're used, right? It's how they're used. And what, what Paul is saying and what the Holy Spirit is saying here in Romans 6 is, it's not that your body itself inherently is evil. You don't have a sinful kneecap. It's, it's not like you are, your body, I mean, there, there are people that have taught this over the years, you know, do away with the body because the body's evil. No, the body has potential for great good or great evil. It all has to do with, as Paul says in 12 and 13, who we give ourselves over to, what we decide to do with it. But sin and temptation come through the body. James Montgomery Boyce writes about this, and he, he highlights some areas of the body that perhaps Paul was talking about here. And he starts with the mind. Now, I find that interesting because a lot of you think, well, the mind isn't the body. But it actually is. The brain is a, part, it's a bodily organ. Our minds, though an immaterial part of us, are affected by our brain. And our mind is a physical way that Satan most often attacks us. In our mind, the battle begins. And we decide, am I going to give myself over to sin or am I going to do what's right? And then what happens? Because of the mind and the heart and everything, it starts to flow through the body. And then we act out whatever it is that... We've decided. So the sin begins in the mind, which is part of the body, and then it goes on from there. And maybe he's thinking of eyes and ears. How many times does sin come through the eye gate, through the ears, where we see something, we hear something, and it causes some desires in us? I think of Achan, who, Achan in the Old Testament, who saw that treasure and decided, you know, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I really want that. And he went and he got it, and he hid it, and his whole family ended up being destroyed. Or David, who sees Bathsheba. So many times, uh, through our bodily organs, temptation comes. And the eyes themselves aren't the sinful part. It's what happens through them. Or the tongue. I mean, James talks about this a lot. Right? The, the, the tongue is like a small, it's a small member. It's like a little rudder that turns the whole boat. Or it's like a fire that puts the whole life ablaze. The tongue can be a bodily part that, that, that is used for sin. Hands and feet. I just thought about two passages off the top of my head that are actually good ways to use your hands and feet. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, use your hands to work hard so that you can be a testimony to unbelievers, to outsiders. Like work hard with your hands. Do a good job so that you're a testimony to those around you. And Romans 10, in just a while, we'll get there. It says about your feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who take good news, who share the gospel. So you're seeing that your body can be used for great good, like sharing the gospel, or great evil. It comes down to who are you giving yourself over to? What is your, how are you using your body? How are you allowing your body to be used? Leon Morris talks about the body and he says this about it. He says, it's stupid to allow that which will die, that's your body, to have the supreme position. Paul is not arguing that the body is the cause of sin, but that it is the organ through which sin manifests itself so that believers Obey it. Sin loves to use and abuse the body. It does. Sin loves to use and abuse the body. How does it do that? Well, one way is that sin turns a need 
into an obsession. It takes a human need that we have, a legitimate need, and it makes it an obsession. So we all have needs as humans, right? Oxygen, we have the need for like clothing, shelter, food and water, coffee, and okay, we only have certain basic needs, but those basic needs must be met, and we must have those met, and that's legitimate. That's not wrong to need to drink or to eat or to have shelter or to have food. But so many times Satan attacks us through our needs and those needs become something we obsess over, something that we focus on, that become idols, things that we worry about, things that all of a sudden lusts are stirred if we're not careful. Remember how Satan tempted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry? He hadn't eaten for 40 days and he hadn't drank anything for 40 days and nights and Satan attacks him through his needs. He legitimately needed food and he legitimately needed water, but Satan attacked him. And he does this so often with us. How many times have you struggled to trust God with your needs? And all of a sudden it was an opportunity for temptation and then for sin. So often the body is used and it's abused by sin in this way. But another way is that sin corrupts good bodily pleasure. And I think this is so prevalent. I want to spend a little time here because... This is what sin does. If we talk about this text, how does this work? Well, when we give ourselves over to sin, sin actually works against us and it uses our body against us. We think about pleasure. All pleasure comes from God. There is not a single pleasure that you can think of, fill in the blank, that doesn't somehow come derivatively from God. God, he made pleasure. He designed it all. It's sin that takes it and warps it and messes it up. You're talking about food, sex, sport, rest, any pleasure you can think of, in and of itself is good. It's what sin does with it. We cannot improve pleasure, try as we might. We can't improve pleasure more than God can. God made it. God designed our bodies. He knows how our bodies are wired because he wired them. I have to constantly remind myself of this. The most pleasurable thing that I can do is enjoy this world with all of its beauty in order to bring glory to God. Yes, enjoy the pleasures of life, but with a desire to bring glory to him. And if I live within his boundaries, if I honor him as I enjoy the pleasures of life, it is the most pleasurable experience that's out there. It just is. But that's kind of counterintuitive to the way that we think because we're living in the flesh. And it is certainly counterintuitive to what the world tells us. The world shouts at us loud and clear, you Christians are missing out. And we think there must be more pleasure out there. I remember when I was working at UPS way back in the day when I was engaged to my wife, Jen, and I remember telling some, some guys I worked with, hey, I'm getting married on August 18th, you know, and, and they were like, congrats. And then the one guy was like, oh man, marriage to one woman the rest of your life? Like, Sex with one woman the rest of your life? Oh my goodness, like good luck with that. Because in his mind, it, it couldn't possibly more, be more pleasurable to do it the way that God designed it. And he, he, he kind of laughed at that. He kind of scoffed at it. It's the same way that porn damages so many men and women and teenagers and even kids today. It promises this higher pleasure and in reality, it actually does the opposite. It actually hurts us. The studies have shown that it takes our neuropathways and it, 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 uh, it makes paths 
that pleasure must travel. And unless it travels that way, we don't experience pleasure. So now we're limited. But we we, we think for sure it's going to be more pleasurable. We think for sure that that's really where it's at. Because see, sin hijacks pleasure. It's like a pirate. It takes pleasure, it raids it, and it turns it in dark and dangerous directions. That's what sin does. So it takes what is very pleasurable, designed by God, and it turns it in a direction that is corrupt, in a dark direction. And I think one of the best examples for this is sexual pleasure as we talk about it. Any form, any form of deviance from God's wise design when it comes to sexuality to our bodies is going to result in less pleasure, not more pleasure. And I know some of you are sitting there going, like, I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe that. I know. It's something we have to fight against because Satan, he, he shouts at us very loud and clear. But if you're married, the most pleasure you could experience is honesty, faithfulness, chastity with your spouse, honoring God in that sexual relationship. Satan's not telling you that. As a single person, the most pleasure you could experience is remaining chaste and not engaging in all that sexual immorality. And I know it's like that does not make sense to me. But if God wired your body, if he made your body, I think he knows how it works. It's something I got to remind myself all the time. Sin just takes pleasure and hijacks it. That's what it does. God's the one who designed it. See, the world thinks about pleasure in such small-minded ways. Such small-minded ways. God has a bigger mind. God understands beauty. God understands pleasure way better than we could understand it. Small-minded. Yet we think there's this world out there, and so we naively pursue pleasure, and then we realize, oh, wow, there's a lot of pain that comes with doing it outside of God's plan. I am particularly intrigued in this text by the word instrument. You'll see it in your text if you're looking at your scriptures there. Because this word instrument, our, our body parts are instruments. Our body is an instrument. It's most often translated in the word of God in the New Testament as weapon. And I, some versions even say weapon and you probably have a little footnote that says or weapon. And I think this sheds light on how this works. It helps me understand this. Here's what I picture. I picture us in this battle. We're fighting this battle. And there's an enemy. That enemy is Satan and sin. And in this battle, as it says in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. Here's what's happening when we decide to give ourselves over and our body over to sin. It's as if we're taking weapons, ammunition, and we're handing it to the enemy. Now, what do you think the enemy is going to do when we hand them ammunition? What do you think the enemy is going to do when you hand him your body as a weapon? I mean, what would the Third Reich have done if the Allied forces had have just gifted them some battleships and some weapons and various things? Hey, it's Christmas time. You know, here's a gift. What would they have done? Well, they would have used it against them, right? And so I think what Paul is doing is helping us understand what happens here. We offer our body, we offer ourselves as a weapon to the enemy. And guess what happens? The enemy uses it against us. And all of a sudden now we have our body fighting against us. We have, we're caught in an addiction or we're caught in some kind of sinful practice and now it's working against us, eating us from the inside. We're destroying ourselves with our lusts, with our practices and we are our, our, our own worst enemy. Sin is inherently self-destructive. I thought about this during the week. It's like sin is an autoimmune disease. I don't know if you're familiar with autoimmune diseases, but the way they work is that your immune system is meant to target 
infections that enter your body. But with an autoimmune disease, the immune system starts fighting against the body itself, against the tissue. And it's as if your body is working against you. And that is what sin does. If you're offering your body as a weapon, instrument, tool, whatever you want to translate it as, to the enemy, guess what he's going to do with that? He's going to use it against you. And so we find ourselves caught in these sins where we're our own worst enemy. But we don't want to end on a dark, gloomy note, which that is, and that's where many of us often live. The second part of our text says if we give ourselves to God, he fights for us. It says don't give yourself to sin. Don't offer your body parts to sin. Instead, give yourself to God and your body parts as weapons of righteousness, as instruments of righteousness. What does it mean to give ourselves to God? We have to think through this because it really has to become practical for us. Well, one thing I know it means is it means worship. And I know that because Romans 12, in just six chapters, we're going to see these words in Romans 12.1. And notice how similar they are to verse 13. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Isn't that what verse 13 says? Present yourselves to God, your body parts to God. Give yourself to God. What we're practically talking about here is daily obedience, daily worship. Saying, God, here I am. Take me. Take all of me. And this whole idea of obedience is critical. And I would say it this way. Obedience is the key to victory. You may say, well, that's, okay, that's obvious. Yeah, but here's some words from Jerry Bridges who wrote a great book called The Pursuit of Holiness. Highly recommend you read it. It's a classic and it's so helpful in this this whole idea of trying to, you know, be sanctified, become more like Christ. Here's what he says, and this is, this is key. Notice, he says, God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Now, if we st- I read that sentence, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> obedience is oriented toward God. Victory is oriented toward self. This is not to say God doesn't want us to experience victory, but rather to emphasize that victory is a byproduct of obedience. Isn't that good? That's critical because here's what he's saying. He's saying that so many times we as Christians, you know, we sing the songs here about victory and I'm, I'm free and we say, God, give me victory. Like, I want victory, God. And we get up in the morning and go, I'm going to be victorious today. I'm going to do it. And if we're not careful, we might not realize it, but we might have a selfish motivation for me to conquer this sin, for people to understand that I am growing in, in my walk with God, that maybe I can even help somebody else. Like, I just want to kick this thing so I can help other people. But what we haven't done is we haven't bowed before Almighty God. And we haven't said, God, I am, I'm unable. I'm completely unable. I lack the ability. I need your spirit. I need you to today fill me. I need you to take all my body, every body part, and I need you to, to use me, and I need you to change me. And like a daily offering of ourselves to God, that's different. That's different. And for some of us, we need a, a shift. We need to stop saying, you know what? This year, 2019, by golly, I'm going to stop doing that or I'm going to do this. I'm going to get the victory. And we need to say, God, oh, how I need you. Every day I need you. Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you change me? See, he'll fight for us and with us. If we offer ourselves to God, every part of us, I'm talking brain and mind, I'm talking heart, I'm talking all of our body, right down to our little pinky toenails, like every part of our body, and we just say, God, it's all yours it's all yours. Now, that's the kind of man or woman or boy or girl or teenager that God can use, right? The kind of person that says, I'm wholly yours, God, and I'm going to mess up. 
I'm going to stumble, but it's all yours. Do with it what you want. That surrender, that's where it begins. Here's the secret that many people miss. Because they try so hard to abstain. They they go, like, okay, I'm not going to do this today. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to stop doing this. And all they're thinking about is not doing it. So it's like me saying, do not think about the color purple. Okay, right now, do not think about purple. Don't do it. And you're like, Mark is purple up there. Like, he's Barney. Because I put it in your mind and all you do is obsess over it. And so, so many people are, are saying, I just can't do it today. I just, I just don't want to do that. And, I, and they haven't done what the text says. And that is, don't just refrain from offering yourself to sin. Offer yourself to God. And what this means is with all the energy, with all the passion that you gave yourself over to sin, use that passion, use that energy to give yourself to God. With that thought that you had where you were like, you know, I don't even care what happens. I don't even care that it's against the Bible. I'm going to do this today. With all of that energy, you say, you know what? I don't care what anyone else thinks. I don't care what it means for my life. God, I'm yours. That's a change. That's different than just managing sin and trying to clean ourselves up. Daily offering ourselves to God. I want you to know that's more than a Sunday endeavor. That's more than just here now. Though this is so important. This corporate gathering, this body of Christ is absolutely essential for you to walk in holiness. You have to have other believers You know, there are people surrounding you. You need to worship with other believers. But it's every day. It's not just Sunday. It's tomorrow, Monday morning, saying, God, I didn't sleep very well last night. But would you take me today? Would you take every part of me and show me what it means to walk in holiness? It's time to be killing sin before it kills us. What Paul is talking about is nothing short of a revolution of righteousness, Why do I use that phrase, revolution of righteousness? He's saying you've let sin master you, make you do what it wants you to do, and now it's time to say enough. It's time to say, nope, I dethrone sin. I offer myself to God. I bow at God's throne. Charles Cranfield said this about Christians. He said, Christians must not let sin go on reigning unopposed over their daily life, but must revolt in the name of their rightful ruler, God against sin's usurping rule. How many of you in here this morning are ready to engage in a virtuous mutiny? Are any of you feeling rather mutinous today? This is what the text is saying. It's saying it's time for an insurrection. It's time for a mutiny. We dethrone sin. Instead, we bow before Christ and give him all of us. This is actually an insurgency that honors God. This is insubordination that glorifies God. We're saying, no, I will not be mastered by sin because I'm a new creation. And here's the good news. If we've elected sin to be our ruler, we don't have to wait for the next election cycle or election year to get him out of there. Sin can and should be impeached every moment of every day. So yes, he's a ruler that makes our life miserable, but we're supposed to say, enough. So what, what is God convicting you today? What is it that he's putting upon your heart and you're saying, yeah, you know what? That thing has kind of worked its way to the top of the hill. It's playing king of the hill now in my heart. It's ruling. It's, it's causing me to do things that I don't really want to do as a Christian. If something or someone is on the throne of your heart, it has no business being there. It's an imposter. And it needs to get out of there because you are a new creation made in Jesus Christ. Only Christ should be your Savior. Only Christ should be your Lord. Only Christ should be on the throne. 
It's time to say, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. I want to become what I already am. I want to live like I should live. Because that propped up idol makes for a shoddy substitute for the Messiah who died for you and rose for you. That's the only legitimate ruler. He's the only one that you should be bowing before. Everything else is an imposter. Everything else is way out of line. Last week we had some cardboard testimonies up here. I don't know if you were able to be here. I was out of state, so I watched the video. But were they not powerful? Have those cardboard testimonies up here where we saw people testify what God has done and what God is doing in them. And I know every one of those people didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm good now, check that off the list. They still battle it probably. But God is doing something in them. They, they're not what they want to be, but they're not what they once were. They are not the person they used to be. And I want to challenge you to let that, that image, and if you weren't here, you can, you can find the video by emailing me because I have it, okay? Let that be an image or a call to a revolution for you. They were leading the way. They were saying, hey, I've given myself to God and here's what God's done in me. And maybe you were sitting there going, man, I wish I could do a cardboard testimony. I wish that God would do this in my life. Let that be the call. Kind of like, you know, in Braveheart where he's riding the horse in front of everyone and getting them all riled up. Anyone seen that? Anyone seen that? Okay, a couple of us. All right, good. You know, he's, he's just getting everyone, ex- they'll never take our freedom. And he gets the whole crowd going. And I would hope and I would pray that those brave souls that would get up here, hold a piece of cardboard and say, hey, this is what I was, this is what I was doing, this is what God's done in me, let that be a catalyst. Let that spark a revolution in your heart where you say, God, I need to, I need to submit myself to you. Maybe one day I'll have a cardboard testimony, but I'm gonna do this for your glory. I'm gonna obey you. I'm gonna submit to you and give my whole being to you. I'm gonna be involved in this virtuous mutiny. After this service, we're going to have a prayer team up here. We always do. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you. If the Holy Spirit is putting something on your heart as we read through this text, and you say, yeah, I have given myself over to sin in that area. I need to stop doing that, but I also need to give myself over to God. I want to encourage you, come up here. Find a person to pray with. And just, if you're, even if you're only honest with one person in this church, say, I need you to pray for me about this. You could even say, I appreciate it if you don't say anything to anyone. But just start to open up and be honest. I'm not saying hold a piece of cardboard up here, although that would be neat. Just open up and tell one believer, say, this is what I'm dealing with. Would you pray for me? Would you come alongside of me and ask me how I'm doing? Encourage me. Show me how to do this. Maybe you're battling an addiction. And the first step here, if you're saying, well, how do I practically apply this? Tell somebody. Come out and say, I'm being honest. I need some help. Help me. We have an awesome ministry called Celebrate Recovery and they meet on Mondays and that's a great place to come because what everyone's saying as they come to Celebrate Recovery is, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm messed up, but we all are and we're in this together and we're trying to work out what God wants us to do. Check out that maybe. Come talk to me about that or fill out a card and say I'm interested in Celebrate Recovery. Tell your small group, maybe you have a small group, but you've never opened up about something because you were too scared. Next time you meet, Or maybe it's just with the guys if you're a guy or just with the girls if you're a girl. Say, guys, this is what I'm actually battling. This is what I'm dealing with. And just be honest. Because you gotta stop giving yourself to sin. You gotta make a change and give yourself to God. For some of you, that's, that would be for the very first time. Because never before in your life have you submitted to to Jesus Christ and said, Jesus, be my Lord. I'm following you. I'm 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 not following 
my sin anymore. I, I want to be done with that. Jesus, you're my Savior. You're my Lord. What you did on the cross for me in my place is what I want. And for you, today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're sitting in the chair and you're saying, yeah, I need to do that. Come up, pray with one of our prayer team. For a lot of us, it's just been way too long. That's what it is. It's been way too long that we've submitted and surrendered X, Y, or Z to God. What God would do if we will completely give him all of us, everything, our minds, our body parts, and we say, God, here it is. Well, we know what he'll do because verse 13 tells us. He'll make it a weapon of righteousness. How cool is that to think about yourself, your body, you, you as a person being made a weapon of righteousness in God's great endeavor. In this crusade that God is in of building his kingdom and building the church and con conquering sin and Satan and knocking down the gates of hell, you can be a weapon of righteousness. Again, as you submit to him, not for your own glory, for his glory. That's what happens is our body parts now are working for us. We are a weapon of righteousness, an instrument of righteousness. That's what our body is. Rather than fighting against us. And we become somebody that God uses powerfully. What God would do if we give him our entire being. And that's how we were designed to operate. That's how true pleasure is found in submission. In saying, I'm yours, God. Take my body, every part of it. Not listening to the seduction of sin, which says, come engage in this and you'll experience more pleasure than what God has for you. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. That's, that's a complete lie. No, instead of that, saying, here I am, God. Take me, use me as a tool, a weapon of righteousness. What Satan wants is he wants to chew you up and he wants to spit you out and then he hopes that you'll come back because you're a glutton for punishment. That's what he wants to do, but not God. God wants to take you. He wants to restore your humanity. He wants you to be all that he made you to be. And he wants to use you in his great building of the kingdom. So brother and sister, victory is possible. It is possible. Haven't you heard that the last couple weeks from God's word? It's possible. Victory. We've been freed. And it's possible through obedience. It's possible through submitting yourself to God in all that he wants for you. Not trying to do it yourself. Not trying to get victory for yourself but just being obedient. Remember, it starts with our identity and it works its way out through obedience. It starts with the fact that we are a new creation. Our identity drives our morality and growth and holiness is becoming what we already are.